Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands we record this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as well as the Wanarua and the Gamilaroi people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Recently, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese outlined the 10 professions with the most dire worker shortages, those who will need a stack of people to fill positions in the near future. In recognition of the urgent challenges facing our nation, we want to see more Australians gaining the skills they need to find good jobs in areas of national priority. Today, we look at those in-demand professions, what getting the qualifications looks like and what the job actually entails before you consider putting yourself in the running for a Jobs of the Future career change. But first, news headlines for Friday, September 2nd. The Australian Medical Association is urging the government to release the health advice it received to make the decision to decrease COVID isolation from seven days to five. AMA President Steve Robson says they were not consulted ahead of the change, calling on the government not to treat COVID as other infectious diseases after the Prime Minister said there aren't mandatory isolation requirements for other illnesses. The state and territory leaders have defended the decision with WA Premier Mark McGowan saying he's satisfied with the health advice presented to him at National Cabinet and by his own Chief Health Officer. Police are now investigating the contents of a Discord group chat involving students at Sydney's Knox Grammar School that contained inappropriate images and offensive commentary. The Daily Telegraph was able to view the messages which discussed pedophilia and violent, racist, misogynistic and anti-Semitic comments, choosing to forward them on to police. The school sent a letter home to parents saying there had been a range of consequences for the boys involved, including that some no longer attended the school. A team from the International Atomic Energy Agency has braved intense shelling to reach Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The UN nuclear agency boss says they will now provide an impartial, neutral and technically sound assessment of the plant, which has been the target of shelling, with both Ukraine and Russia pointing the finger at the other as being responsible for damage to the facility and for forcing the shutdown of one of the reactors due to nearby shelling. As the inspectors arrived at the front line, Russian and Russian-installed officials accused Ukraine of sending troops on boats to try and recapture the plant, while Ukraine accused Russia of staging the incident to blame Ukraine and block the visit. Russian President Vladimir Putin has paid his respects to former leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away this week, but he won't be attending his funeral. 
Putin went to the hospital where Mr Gorbachev's body is being kept ahead of the funeral on Saturday, but has chosen to depart on a working trip instead of staying to lay the former Soviet leader to rest. They've also not promised a state funeral, with some speculating that it would have made it more difficult for both Putin to avoid attending and not having to invite foreign guests. Gorbachev's legacy is a complicated one for Russia, the West seeing him as the force that led to the end of the Cold War, but the current leadership blames him for not securing a commitment ruling out the expansion of NATO in the region. It's been revealed that actress Anne Hesch did not leave behind a will, with her son requesting to gain control of his mother's estate and guardianship of his 13-year-old brother. 20-year-old Homer Lafoon filed the paperwork in LA's Superior Court this week, noting that the estimated value of his mother's estate is unknown and will have to undergo forensic accounting. Hesch died last month after the car she was driving smashed into a house. That's your latest news headlines in a moment. Today's Deep Dive. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Right now in Australia, there are more job vacancies than there are people actively looking for work. That has left many industries struggling to find enough staff for their businesses to function day to day. In response, the federal government has outlined the top 10 so-called jobs of the future, areas where we're struggling to find people to fill roles. Some of those jobs include those we've known needed a boost for a long time, like teachers, nurses, aged care workers and early childhood educators. We also need a stack of chefs, electricians, construction workers and civil engineers. See, during the pandemic, border closures meant we didn't have any skilled migrants coming to Australia, leaving a big hole in the labour market, which is only now slowly returning to pre-pandemic levels. Many businesses are finding that where before COVID it was easy to poach overseas talent and entice them down under, it's now much more difficult, with potential immigrants citing our long border closures during the height of the pandemic as a turn-off, bringing fears that if something were to happen again, they'll be stuck here. There are calls to increase Australia's skilled migrant intake by 40,000 people a year, from 160,000 up to 200,000 something that might be considered in the government's October budget. The unions are calling for a minimum funding of 70% for TAFE and a 50% Commonwealth-funded wage subsidy for employed apprentices, who would take home a quarter of that payment as a retention bonus. They're also suggesting the visa conditions that tie foreign workers to a single employer be abolished, allowing them to work anywhere in their chosen industry to fill those holes in industries with a verified skill shortage. But what if you're already working and are, say, thinking of chucking in your job as a cleaner for one as a sparky? Maybe you're getting ready to start uni and want to know what it takes to become a civil engineer. What do you need to know about those jobs with a high demand for workers and how can you be one of the people who ends up cashing in on that? Today, we've lined up four incredible women who work in four of those so-called jobs of the future to get all the inside goss. Let's start with Lou Bishop. 
She's an electrician and often shares her adventures wiring up houses on her Instagram, Life Done by Sparky Lou. She also started her career in the industry later on in life. I sort of had been doing management for about 20 years, different areas, sort of property management was my last area and I sort of found myself at a crossroads of I still didn't have a degree or qualification of sorts and I was you know, looking down the barrel of 35 and yeah, I just needed a change, got sick of customer service and <laughs> decided to look around for other trades. I knew I wanted to do a trade because it's you know, something I'd always been interested in but sort of never had the guts to do. And then speaking to the electrician that we had in our property management firm, he was really great at encouraging me and letting me know that, you know, this skill, this skill and this skill is great and you'll make a great electrician. And then, yeah, just took Giant leap of faith and a midlife crisis at 35 and completely flipped one of my family's life around. (laughs) Well, tell me how you actually did that because, I mean, the young fellas, we see generally they are fellas that we see becoming sparkies. They go to trade school, they become an apprentice, they have to live on an apprenticeship wage for a certain amount of time before they go into their area of specialty. Is that what you had to do? Yeah, it's exactly the same. So you do what's called a pre-vocational course, which is 12 weeks to start off. Now, when I first started, I just sort of started cold calling a whole heap of companies just, you know, saying, hey, did you want to take on a mature age female electrician apprentice? And yeah, turned away solidly for about three months. When I started five years ago, there weren't a lot of females in the trade. So yeah, signed up, started my pre-vocational course. I ended up getting a job halfway through that, which is fantastic. So they said, get out of there, come work for us, we'll put you through TAFE, we'll pay you to go to TAFE. And then the career started and it's exactly the same thing. You do your four years of TAFE on an apprenticeship wage. So it is a little tight for the four years and having myself three children, it was yeah tight, but we made it work. Now, there's not just one type of electrician, right? So how do you decide which type of electrician you want to be and what did you end up choosing? Exactly right. It's a type of career that can take you in so many different directions and it's continuously developing and the technology is upgrading all the time. So you can do anything from domestic to commercial to industrial. You can do anything from sort of running around doing service calls to big industrial warehouses or working for, say, a water company, Unity Water or something like that. So I fell into construction. So I've done housing construction, so new builds of houses, and I've also done commercial construction, which ranges from shops to hospitals to police stations to schools and everything in between. So that's the good thing about the trade. It is so broad and, yeah, you can have the choice pretty much of what you like to do. Another of the jobs of the future is software engineer, someone who's responsible for designing and developing software solutions for their clients, like Mariki Kutza, who's made her way into the industry without any formal qualifications. I had none. I had my finished school. I went all the way in school and just had to work really hard. And the thing is with software engineer, the technology space is huge and you need to stay on top of all of the different software solutions that's out there. And you have to upskill and keep yourself up to date with everything that's happening. Having a degree in software engineer obviously will help you tremendous lot. For me, I had to just work hard and just make sure that I understand and keep up. I never had the opportunities like so many other people had (laughs) to go to university and study, but it was never a blocker for me. I could always just had the right people around me who gave me the opportunities to grow. How do you explain to people what it is you do every day? Like the ins and outs of a day in the life of Mariki, what would you say that you do? 
Yeah, so every day I try and start earlier. That's the biggest challenge is about an hour early so that I can research what's going on in my industry, seeing what's new because the technology stack is huge and there's so many solutions and offerings that we use to make our lives easier. And then my day starts where I will look at whatever is on my Jira board and whatever I left off yesterday. So the Jira board is just a place where the customer would break down their needs or the project's needs and either there are bugs or these features that we're currently working on and you will prioritize. It will normally be prioritized on a board and I will be busy with a ticket on the board. And we normally call it stand-up where the whole team gets together and we explain this is what I did yesterday and this is what I'm doing today. And the whole purpose of that meeting is to ensure that if someone needs help, if something big was changed, it will affect you so that we're all on the same page every day. We start off on the same page. And then you start coding the fun part. <laughs> and that's when you say, go, right, today I'm going to fix my bug that I had yesterday or today I'm going to start with this exciting new feature. What do you love the most about your job? Oh, I love the creativity, the challenges. It just never gets boring. You know, you get to experience new tech. The industry grows tremendously fast and there's always new things you can try out. And there's always a better way of doing it. Even though you try to develop your code so elegantly, <laughs> you know, you want to be on the wall of the elegant developer, you know, for this week. There's always a better way of doing things and it's keeping up to it and delivering those solutions. There are a ton of jokes about people who end up in engineering fields, like that God must have been a civil engineer because who else would run a waste disposal pipeline through a perfectly good recreational area? Someone who's heard them all is Beck Benson, who is herself a civil engineer. I chose civil engineering as a university degree because I was good at maths, which is your typical answer, I guess. So my maths teacher and my mum suggested, hey, why don't you look into engineering? So I looked into it, went to a few open days and thought, yeah, that looks like what I want to do. So how long did that degree go for and what was the transition like for you from studying into actually doing the job? So I did a combined degree in civil and environmental engineering, which is a five-year degree. Usually a civil engineering degree is just four years. So you finish your five years and I get in your last year of university, you start applying for what we call graduate jobs. So that usually starts midway through your last year and then you start your job in March the following year. So my transition was, I think I had about a three-month period between when I finished uni and then starting my graduate job at a consulting firm. So what exactly did you do at that firm? What's the role of a civil engineer in the company? So it's very broad civil engineering. I guess civil engineers can range from anyone working on roads, rails, structures, buildings, and what I do, which is water and wastewater infrastructure. So my first role was in a wastewater infrastructure design team. So we look at planning for the future, looking at what wastewater infrastructure the community needs. So especially where there's areas of lots of growth, and then we design the assets that they need, whether that's pipelines to their houses to transfer water from reservoirs to other areas or pump stations to pump sewage from people's houses up to a sewage treatment plant. So Yes, that's what I do, but I guess there's many other civil engineering kind of roles out there. What would you say the best thing is about being a civil engineer? 
I like my job because it's varied. Every day can be quite different. We have flexibility to work in different offices with the clients or at home. And every day, you kind of, you don't know what to expect. It keeps you on your toes. Well, that's the best part. What's the worst part about being a civil engineer? It can be quite frustrating at times, I guess. You know, our job is to deliver infrastructure that not necessarily people might not know that they need. So we do have to deal with the community and really trying to like explain to them why we're doing what we're doing is a good idea. So it can be a bit frustrating. And also there's a lot of deadlines and pressure with being a civil engineer. It's full on, especially at the moment with so much infrastructure being built. And I know a lot of people are working ridiculous hours and putting a lot of pressure on themselves to get things done. So that's definitely a downside. The rise of the reality TV shows given us glimpses into the world of the chef, with celebrity types like Gordon Ramsay showing us how mean and cutthroat it can be, and MasterChef revealing the diverse range of skills you may require to specialise in your area of culinary expertise. So with chefs in high demand right now, let's find out with Christy Davies, whose family connections got her into the industry. If I'm being honest, my dad is a chef and growing up I always thought he was the best chef in the world which probably I'll still hold him pretty closely to that (laughs) and the end factor was he really wanted me to be a chef and he offered to buy me a car if I did my apprenticeship. (laughs) So what was the process for you? Were you someone who went to a school to learn? Did you learn on the job? How did it work for you? So it's a bit of both. It's a three-year apprenticeship through just the local TAFE which is one day a week for two years. And then the third year is just primarily training based at the restaurant that you work at. And the first two years you do four days a week at a restaurant. So you learn kind of like your key things at the TAFE and then the most of your knowledge comes from on the job training. So talk me through what you love about your job. What keeps you going back every day? I love how it's fast paced. It's very go, go, go. And the day goes quick. I love being kept busy. I have left cooking once to do admin work and it was just very hard to adjust. Another big thing that pulls you back is it's extremely rewarding when you do like a big function and all the people sort of come in and say how amazing everything was and thank you for everything. It's just hugely rewarding. What's the flip side? What's the toughest part of your job? The hours are pretty average. Most of the time you miss out on a lot of the social things that are going on because you're the one cooking for them. (laughs) Probably the worst one is you can never, ever please everyone. So you might do a function for 100 people. There's always going to be one person that will complain and not be happy, even if the other 99 say it was fantastic. And that's the one person that just ruins your day. So now we've heard the ins and outs of these jobs of the future. What advice do these wise women of their industries have for those thinking about starting their careers or changing up their work future? just research what area that you really want to do. I didn't realise how many different areas there were when I sort of fell into it. And it wasn't until I went to TAFE and sort of saw the broad spectrum. But also to ask a lot of questions. That's the thing with this sort of job. You have to ask the questions. Don't sort of go out on your own and try and get it right the first time. It's also a good career too for body longevity as well. But also you can't be scared of tight spaces or spiders or the occasional snake in a roof. That's all. (laughs) I would say to them, you need to understand the amount of time you're going to spend on this tech stack. Make sure that it's your passion because it's going to take more than just your eight-hour day. This is not an eight-hour job. 
that you're taking up. Like I said, you need extra hours to make sure that you are on top of it all. You need to make sure that you have time to play with these new technologies. You've, you've got to build like your proof of concept so that if you ever have to implement and use these features that you've done it before and you kind of vaguely have an idea how to apply yourself with these things. But it's an extremely rewarding 